open to the scriptures to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. Yes. I, um, I am just grateful that God does give us freedom, and we don't always use it properly, and um, we forget that we are free in Him, but He's been reminding me that this week, and so I just want to praise Him for who He is and His faithfulness and His faith. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Our freedom has been bought and paid for. Amen. Praise His name. Because He lives, we too can have life. Amen. Well, big questions need big answers, don't they? And we certainly live in a world that is full of questions. Full of questions. <clears throat> the message this morning um, will be indirectly related to the text. Um, it's, it's not going to be directly about this passage of Scripture, but it is about uh, the idea behind it. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's bow our hearts for just a moment of prayer. Father, thank you that death has lost its grip on us, that because you live, we also live, and we have freedom in Jesus, and that is a present reality. We ask that you will help us in this the remaining few moments of this service, would you speak to us from your word? Would you build our faith? And maybe today, maybe this morning might be the time when you answer some of the big questions that somebody has here that might allow them to come to faith in you. And Lord, we trust that this will be the case, that you will use what is offered, use it by your Holy Spirit. Lord, my words and what I have to say is, is not important, but it's what you have to say. We ask that you would be glorified here today, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, every viewpoint has a foundation, an underlying a foundation of ideas and presuppositions that inform that viewpoint. I've mentioned to you before that every worldview or belief system needs to answer three, somewhere between three and five really big questions. Um, where did I come from? Why am I here? What's my purpose? What, is, what does it mean to have a good life? In other words, what, is, what does it mean to have fulfillment in this life? And where am I going? What is my destiny? Well, the foundation of Christian thinking is this book, God's Word, the Bible. Um, when we think about the answers to questions that are in our world today, and I, and I understand that we live in a society where the line between uh, religion and politics has gotten very fuzzy and very blurred, and I 
regret that that is the case. However, I have learned uh, very easily, very quickly, when people ask me about my position on certain values, it's not so much a political position as it is a biblical position that informs why I do and live my life the way that I live. Things like abortion rights, gun violence, racial division, even political strife itself, things like health care, what should we do with and for the poor, how should we handle the problem of the poor in the society in which we live, all of these things that have become very politicized, if we will lay aside the political identity and say, Lord, what would your word have us to do? we would find there the answers to many of those questions. Some of them, I think, we would find do align with the typical political position that most of us in the church tend to take. However, I think in some cases we would be surprised to find that the typical political position of the church is maybe not quite the biblical position. May God help us in those situations to understand that it's not so important that I identify as a right-wing, conservative, Republican, American, or whatever it is you identify as. But what's more important is that I identify as a Bible-believing Christian. And if that means I fall on one side of the political spectrum or the other side of the political spectrum, so be it. And let the fallout come what may. Wow, did not intend to be that impassioned, but that's, that's the truth. So when people ask, why do you believe what you do? Why do you, do, why do you make the choices that you make? For all of us as Christians, it ought to trace back, not to a political position, a political party, but it ought to trace back to God's word. You see, without this foundation, all we really have are the ideas of mankind that come and go and change and fluctuate with the passage of time and often with what seems to be expedient at the moment. Now some have taken positions and then tried to find a Bible verse to support their position. A good example of this would be slavery, the issue of slavery. In our, in our past, in our distant past, slavery was supported by, or people used the Bible, used verses from the Bible to support slavery, to say this is, this is what we ought to be doing, this is God's design, God's idea, and, and the Greek word for that is baloney. You see, what that is, and, and we could find many other examples of this, what that is is simply someone starting with their mind already made up and then going to the Bible to try to find somewhere where they might be able to support their thinking. And people are still doing this in the world that we live in. 
It doesn't work that way, friends. We start with God's Word. We start with the Bible. And if the Bible turns over or upsets our preconceived notions or our way of thinking, then our way of thinking needs to go, and we need to align ourselves with what God's Word says. Now, I will grant to you that the church and many Christians have not always had adequate support for our faith in the Bible. A, a typical argument as a reason for believing in God's Word, believing in the Bible, might go like this. I believe in the Bible and that it's true because it's from God. And I believe that it's from God, I trust God because of what I read in the Bible. Now, do any of you see any problems with this line of reasoning? Good, I'm glad a few of you do. Let, let me say it again, and I hope you can see simply, simply by the diagram that this line of logic, this line of reasoning doesn't work. Now, for some people, it's enough. It's okay if you are one of those people where you, for me, this is, this is enough. And I, I will grant you our faith, as long as it is not misplaced, our faith is much more important than our logic and our reasoning. However, our faith ought to also be reasonable and rational. In fact, uh, we read in the Bible, in Peter's writings, that we are to be ready always to give a reason to, to people for the hope that is within us. That, that word reason is the word apologia. It is, a, it is the idea of a defense. And that means we ought to be able to present a rational defense for the things that we believe. I like the song that we sang earlier. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. I believe all of that. However, I have a problem with the last line. Now, I don't want to say there's no legitimacy to personal testimony. There is. Personal testimonies are very legitimate. That's one thing that nobody can ever argue with you. Yet, on the same token, you can never argue with the personal testimony of the Hindu or the Muslim that says, because of my belief system, I've found peace. And they've practiced it, and it's brought them what they feel is some measure of peace. Well, just like they can't argue with our personal testimony about Jesus, we can't argue with their personal testimony. That's, they feel it's subjective. They feel they've, this is what they've experienced. So the, the line of that court, maybe I, maybe I didn't mention it. You ask me how I know it's true because he lives within my heart. Well, nobody can really argue that either for or against it's good enough for me. It's good enough for many of you, and that's great. 
But we shouldn't be surprised when if we go out into the world and talk to people about Christianity and about why they ought to follow Jesus and believe in God's word, and we tell them, well, why do you believe God's word? Well, I believe it's true because it's from God, and I trust God because of what I read in the Bible. When you try to use that, that line of reasoning, don't be surprised when you run into somebody. It won't take long for you to run into somebody who will say, that's not good enough. It's worth asking, would we accept this line of reasoning as a valid argument in favor of another worldview, another world religion? If we, were, if we were in debate with someone over a worldview or over a belief system or over a religion and you, you knew what you were doing and you knew your Bible and you knew the, the, the line of reasoning and the arguments in favor of believing the Bible and the existence of God and why Jesus really is who he said he was, then, and, and somebody else, say a, a, an Islamic scholar, now, most of them, by the way, are going to be smart enough not to use this line of reasoning. But if you did run into it, I would be quick to point that out and say, that's not valid. That's circular reasoning. It doesn't work. It doesn't support itself. So why really should we believe the Bible? Why really should we believe it's true? And friends, I want to tell you this morning the primary reason why really anybody should believe in God's word and should take it as the foundation for their entire life is simply this. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, friends, everything hangs on this. The belief that this is something that happened in history and that it, is, it changed all of history from that moment forward. It's the reason we even have the Bible today. Think about this. If, even if Jesus lived and died, now we might have some writings. Somebody, I was making this defense to someone just a few days ago and telling them this is the foundation for the Christian faith. This is the foundation for believing in the Bible. It is, it is, the, it is the historical fact that Jesus died and rose again. And this person brought up to me, well, there are other religions founded by real people, you know, such as Muhammad. And I said, yeah, that may be true. I'm, I won't argue that he was a real person, that he lived in history, that he was the founder of the Islamic religion. But there is no argument or even a claim that he died and then rose again. He died, period. Jesus died and then rose again. And it's the reason we even have the Bible. If Christ had not lived, died, and rose again, we would not have the Bible or the church or the Christian religion. I believe this with all my heart. You see, let me try to lay out for you. Now, there is a, <clears throat> if you want to go in a, in a scholarly direction with this and read books and study this out, which, which incidentally, if you have real questions about 
the validity of the Christian faith or the validity of God's Word, then I would encourage you to engage this question. Did Jesus really live, die, and then rise again? I would encourage you to engage it. Study it. Seek it out. But very, very simply, this is not going to be the full spectrum of the argument, but uh, just to hit a few high points. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, his followers believed everything he taught. I'm sorry, that's a little bit smaller than I intend it to be. I don't know how well you can see that. Because of his death and resurrection, Jesus' followers believed everything he taught. That is, his disciples. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, his followers preserved his teachings and spread them. Back up for a minute. If Jesus had not rose from the grave, do you think his followers would have preserved his teachings and spread them? No. I don't believe so at all. In fact, this idea of, of preservation, we, you know, we believe in a doctrine of, ins, of inspiration and authority of God's word. I believe that another idea that is nearly as important is a, is a doctrine of preservation, the idea that God has not only inspired and authorized his word, but that he has preserved his word for us. In fact, the Bible itself in the New Testament, and I, I understand when we start quoting the Bible to support the Bible, you, you run in the direction of circular reasoning. However, there is support for being able to do that, okay? So I, I hope you're following me. It might get complicated at some point, but Jesus promised the preservation of his word. In John chapter 14, verse 25 through 26, he promised his followers that he would send the Holy Spirit to them. And one of the roles, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit was to remind them and help them remember all the things that Jesus taught. And in reminding and helping them remember, they were able to write it down and preserve the teachings of Jesus in the gospel messages, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Also, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, his followers expounded on Jesus' teaching in their own writings. In other words, not that they added to what Jesus taught, but they simply looked at Jesus' teachings and said, well, in light of what Jesus taught, then this must be true, and this must be true, and this also must be true. So not only do we have the books of the Bible like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and also Acts, but we also have Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and, and down through to the book of Revelation that are all written and inspired by God, uh, written through the followers of Jesus Christ because of what they believed about Jesus' death and resurrection. Also, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, his followers multiplied and became a multi-ethnic, multi-generational movement called the church that still exists to this very day. And it continues to be 
probably the most influential of all the world religions. I haven't checked the statistics lately, but one, one recent statistic that I saw was a, a, a chart, a graph that showed the influence of holy books, holy writings um, uh, around the world, and by far the most influential is the Bible. So what is the fulcrum then? What is the point on which everything else hangs? The thing that if you lose, you lose all the rest. What is it? It is the resurrection and de- or the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we lose this, if this is not true, then we lose all of this. We lose our foundation. We lose our reason for for believing, our reason for existing as a church. Everything hangs on it. So we then need to ask the question, why should we believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical fact? Now, I hope you're following me. I hope you're hanging with me. Because, you see, if we can answer this question, if there is a good reason to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical fact, then, friends, we have every reason to believe that everything in this book is true, that Jesus is the only way to live, and we can stake our life and build our life on this book, and we can do it safely and reasonably. So why should we believe? Again, this is another question about which volumes have been written, and many have engaged in the study of this question, and I would encourage you, again, if you have real issues with faith, and, you know, do I really believe, or I, you know, I believe all religions are valid, all all paths are, are a valid way to get to heaven, or a valid way to a relationship with God. No, 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 no. Again, let me just point out to you, if Jesus died and rose from the grave, and that means this book is true, then that means everything in this book is true, and it also means the words that Jesus said where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. It also means that's true, which means, now some people in our world, this is not popular, a not popular way of thinking today because it sounds very intolerant. But can I just tell you, friends, when you're dealing with the truth, it's okay to be intolerant? When you're dealing with truth, it's okay to be intolerant. And so if Jesus really died and rose again and the Bible is true, then all religions are not valid. That means there's only one valid religion, only one way to believe, only one way to get to heaven, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ and a relationship with him. So why should we believe this? Again, just hitting the high points of these arguments. First of all, the accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection are early meaning they are close, they're written close to the actual events, and they are from eyewitness accounts. 
They were written close to the location where everything took place. That's important. This is not like this is something that happened on the other side of the world and somebody on one side of the world is writing about something that happened on the other side of the world. No, this is people, these are people that lived in and around Jerusalem and Palestine, the place where Jesus lived and died, and those were the people that wrote these accounts. And not only that, but everything written, especially the gospel accounts and even the, really, the entire New Testament was completed within a few decades of the actual events. Say, why is that important? Well, it's important because what a lot of people believe about Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection is that it's, it's a legend, it's a myth. And people that study these kinds of things will tell you that Jesus, the, the stories about Jesus cannot be simply mythical or legendary. They have to be either lies or the truth. Because you see, myths and legends are ideas, they're, they're stories that grow over time. And they build over a long period of time. And, and you know, gradually you end up with this, this story about, you know, somebody who claimed something. And over hundreds of years, his followers expanded his powers and his ideas and his beliefs until you end up with this, this myth, this legend about somebody who had these supernatural powers. But historians, scholars, people who study this type of thing will tell us that that the writings about Jesus' life and death and resurrection were completed so close to the time that it actually happened, there wasn't enough time for legend to develop, for myth to develop. Just one idea to support this is that of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. We know from history that the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Romans took place somewhere uh, around the year 70 A.D. And it's interesting to note that none of the gospel writers include that in their writings. Now, I would think that that would be very significant. And anybody writing about history, if that was something that had already happened they would have included that in their writing. But all of the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even as far as I know, throughout most of the entire New Testament, nothing is said about the destruction of the temple. And I think it's pretty safe to assume that the reason for that is that it hadn't happened yet. So if Jesus died and rose from the grave somewhere between the year AD 30 and 35, and the destruction of the temple didn't take place until AD 70 or so, and nobody included that little detail in any of their writings, it's safe to assume that it hadn't happened yet. And so these, the, these writers are recording what took place, and they're writing it in a time frame that's very close to the actual events. Also, the details of the accounts are nonsensical if they are lies. The details of the story, the details of the account of Jesus' death and resurrection are nonsensical if they are lies. Let me just give you one or two examples uh, uh, about this. Um, the guards lying about what happened. In, in Matthew chapter 28, you know, the, the religious leaders went to Pilate and said, 
you know, Jesus claimed that he was going to rise again on the third day, would you give us a guard, somebody to watch over the tomb, to make sure that his disciples don't come? These men who are untrained, they're not military men at all. They're untrained. They're they're afraid they're going to come and steal the body away and claim, because of the empty tomb, that Jesus had really risen from the dead. So, So they were told they could post a guard, and a guard was posted. And then when Jesus did actually rise from the dead, and the guards appeared to the religious leaders and said, well, you know, this happened, and we're not sure what to do, and we're not sure what to say, the religious leaders paid the guards off, paid them money. Um, uh, let's see, it's, it's in Matthew chapter 28. I don't have the exact verse written down. But they were offered money and said, you, you tell people, that his disciples came and overpowered us and took the body away. And if you get in trouble because of what you're saying, then we'll go to bat for you and we'll try to keep you from getting your heads chopped off for being derelict in your duty. Because that's really what would have happened to those guards if they had actually fallen asleep. They would have had their lives taken. Nonsense. One other example about this, that that the accounts, the details are nonsensical if they are lies, is the, the simple little detail that we read about in John chapter 20, that the women who were the followers of Jesus were the first ones to give testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the reason this is important is the fact that in that culture and in that day, the testimony of a Jewish woman was not valid in court. It was not validated. They, a, a Jewish woman couldn't, couldn't testify in court because that day and age, forgive me, ladies, because they were ladies, they were, they were females. And so they were not considered to be believable. So the question would be this. If Jesus' followers were making up a story, were making up a lie, about Jesus having risen from the dead, do you think that they would have also made up the women having been the first witnesses to his resurrection? Of course not. They would have made up some very credible witnesses, some, some very credible testimony that, that would have stood up in a court of law. Moving on, Jesus' followers had no good motive for lying. Jesus' followers have no, had no good motive for lying. By the way, if you are interested in studying this out further, I can point you in the direction of some resources. Uh, But um, along these lines, criminal justice experts will tell us that there are basically only three motives for crime. The first would either be greed. The second would be sexual or relational lust. And the third uh, would be power either greed, lust, or power. And during the time following Jesus' death and resurrection, there was no potential for any of these things to come to the disciples of Jesus as a result of their testimony about Jesus. They weren't going to get rich for saying that Jesus had risen from the grave. They they were not going to have the interest of their significant others 
for claiming that Jesus had risen from the grave. They were not going to develop power. Now, I know eventually power did become a motive for the church, but that happened much later. In the early days following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there was no motive either for greed or for, or for lust or for power, no motive for them to, to lie about the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, most of Jesus' early followers died for their testimony about Jesus. Now, I know lots of people have died for their faith. A good example of that would be uh, Muslims. Many Muslims have given their lives for their faith. So that's not exactly uh, unique to Christianity. However, the followers of Jesus were in a unique position to know whether or not Jesus really had risen from the grave. If he had not risen from the grave, they would have known about it. That means that most of them would have given their lives for something they knew to be a lie. Now, people might give their lives up for something they believe to be true and don't realize it's not. But I don't know of anybody in their right mind who would die for something they know to be a lie. And this is the position that Jesus and his followers, Jesus' followers would have been in. If he had not risen, they would have known about it. We could go on. We could spend hours talking about all of these things and building the case for support of the, the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No, his death and resurrection is not something that you can put into a test tube. You can't repeat it like we talk about the scientific method. However, we can study it as a matter of history and find that just as there's good reason to believe that George Washington was a real man who lived and did the things that he did, we read about in history, and Abraham Lincoln, and so on and so forth, all those things that we learn and read about in history, there is just as good of evidence to believe that Jesus was a real man who lived and died, and then he rose again from the grave. If this is true, and we have good reason to believe that it is, then, friends, that means the whole Bible is true. It means that we were created by God for a relationship with God. It means that our sins have separated us from God. And it means that Jesus died on our behalf to redeem us from our sins. And we owe our lives to Him. The best that we can do is to join with the songwriter who said, Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do, simply to give myself back to Jesus. I want to close with a few verses of Scripture from Matthew chapter 27. This is part of the trial of Jesus before Pilate. And it says, verse 15, Now at the feast the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Because while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor said to them, 
which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Friends, the question that Pilate asked of the crowd that day is the question that confronts every single person throughout history. What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? Pilate said, I wash my hands. I'm, I'm innocent. I'm not going to do anything with Jesus. There are people still today that try to do that with Jesus. I'm just, I'm not going to do anything with him. I'm, I'm going to separate myself from this whole issue. I'm going to go my own way. But I'm not going to have anything to do with Jesus. Others, like the people on that day, said, His blood be on us and on our children. They gladly engage a life of sin and wickedness and evil, pursuing their own way, living their lives for the devil without caring, without heeding, stepping over, walking through the blood of Jesus Christ as if they are saying, they might not say it with their mouths. In fact, many would probably be superstitiously afraid to actually say something like this out loud. But what they are saying by their lives and by their actions is his blood be on us and on our children. But then there are others like the disciples, especially like Doubting Thomas, who when he came to that moment of real conviction, said, my Lord and my God. And friends, this is the Jesus that I want to recommend to you this morning. Whether or not you want to ignore him like Pilate or engage a life of sinfulness and debauchery and say his blood be on me, Uh, and on my children, or whether or not you want to respond with obedience, the question confronts us all. What will I do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Let's stand together, please.